All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner. I'm Bobby Bancroft, and we are back to Bracket Monday Nights. I'm here with Howie Wachtel and John Hawks. Guys, it's been a minute. What's up? What's up, Bobby? Happy Quarantine Monday, man. Quarantine Monday, and there's no Georgetown football in the fall. What was your first thought when you saw that news, guys? <laughs> there's there's Georgetown football. No, that's I I should not say that. Don't I, say I that. that. They've been they've been to it. What is it? A Sugar Bowl or something? Orange Bowl. Or the Orange Bowl. Okay, sorry. Uh, jo- John Reagan is going to reach through this phone and strangle me for saying that. No, I'm 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 being, I'm being facetious, and I'm honestly like I really shouldn't be saying that. Um, unfortunately, I think last week when the Ivy League made their announcement, I actually told my wife like, watch the Patriot League is going to do the same thing within a week. Yeah. Um. This is, I think, I've seen lots of comments on, on, on Twitter and the internet that like college football and the five stages of grief is somewhere around bargaining right now, where we're doing the same thing that college basketball did that one day when every conference tournament decided, well, we'll just do our conference tournament without fans. It's still good. It's still good. Yeah. And it wasn't good. And I think this is probably going to set up, this is going to be the second in a series of dominoes. You'll probably see, my guess is, a lot of the other FCS conferences and then you know, go to either conference only or push it back. And I suspect by the end of the month, some of the the power five schools and in, in, in D1 and FBS are probably going to go either conference only for now, or they'll just push it to the spring in hopes of saving something. I, it's probably not good news um, for, for college sports this academic year. I, I, I can't see short of a, a miracle vaccine coming up. I can't really see any feasible way logistically to pull off college athletics um, in this academic year. If we're not putting students back on campus full-time, it does not make sense from an ethical perspective either to try to play college sports. It's just there's more important things going on, and health and safety take by far the priority here. And I would say for the fall, and this hasn't come up from the Big East yet, but, you know, the biggest football team Georgetown has is actually, you know, currently is men's soccer, even though the women's soccer is really good too. But that's the football where, they're you know, they're trying to defend a national championship and yeah, well, big... I... oh, sorry. No, no, it's okay. I... Three things. So that would—that's my first point. Look, if there's no men's soccer season, we're defending champs for another year, and I'm cool right. with that. So I'll—I'll mm-hmm. I'll take it. Uh, the next thing is, I think for for both college football and the NFL, but especially the NFL, I have a feeling, regardless of what any other sports do, uh, regardless of what any students at universities end up doing. They'll find a way to play some games because it's so much of a moneymaker. And it's it's a horrible thing to say, but I just feel like there's going to be American football, even if there's no the football we know at Georgetown. So I, I'm, still, I'm still awaiting that. I feel like it's going to take a lot for the NFL, especially to cave. And the other, the other thing I'll say is just to take a little bit of a contrarian view. I, I mean, the, the one silver lining about – the NCAA tournament being canceled the day after Georgetown was eliminated in absolutely horrific fashion in the Big East tournament. We weren't in the tournament and we had, you know, one of our worst seasons in a while. So of all the years for a season to be canceled, it probably makes sense for one of, you know, the least anticipated Georgetown seasons to be one that doesn't take place. Yeah. 
you know, I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys got this, but a month or so ago, maybe two or three months ago, um, the ticket office at Georgetown sent a survey out. I presume to, to season ticket holders, maybe it was more broadly to donors, um, but they were asking questions like, you know, different scenarios for how the season might play out. You know, what type of tickets would you be willing to purchase? Like different types of packages, you can get kind of a read on what they were considering doing. I don't know if I actually filled the survey out, but had I filled it out or if I did fill it out, I'm not really sure they would have been too encouraged by my responses. Um, I don't know. I mean, the public health stuff aside, I'm not going to a public sporting event until after there's a coronavirus vaccine. Um, but I'm not sure that I would have renewed my ticket, to be honest. Um, it's just... Uh, well, the problem right now, and I was a season ticket holder from uh 2003 until maybe 2013 and then i didn't need tickets anymore but there's if you give up your seats you're not worried that you're gonna you know not get them back right like there's no there's no scarcity issue like like so they don't they don't have you like you know like when i when i got in right at towards eshrick's end i got incredible seats and it happened to you know i mean i was always going to games but i got my own season tickets and then it was just like, wow, this this is awesome. And but at the same time, like eventually got to a point where like everyone around me, I was in section 111, everyone around me, like it was, you know, like people wanted to get more seats next to me and like you couldn't. But now I can't imagine that's a problem. So who's going to be running to, you know, put deposits down? Nobody. No, like you know, for us, you know, we'd had the same tickets. Um, you know, after we had left my, my wife and after we respectively left the student section, we had the same tickets and the same seats since the final four year, maybe for like 12 years or so with the same basically group of people, give or take some folks who moved out of town and back in. Uh, we gave those seats up for, for last season and just all moved to a different spot. Like we're just getting older now. But yeah, yeah, once you leave the seats that like you've been in for a long time and you like it, that somebody you might care if somebody took them, it, it's kind of who cares. Um, but let me ask you this. Well, that's what you guys where you guys are right now. Do you think there will be any college basketball play during the 2020 2021 like academic year? No. Okay. I mean, I, did you guys see the article on Akoya Gal today? I did. Yes. Not. <laughs> I mean, we're not talking there, about. There may be college basketball in the form of a video game. Right. Now you know what I, I emailed myself a while ago. As a reminder, but I haven't done it yet. But I want to say that he wrote a book. I'm pretty sure Okoye Gao has written a book. And I feel like I don't know how much Georgetown stuff's in there since he went to, you know, a lot of schools. But just to have anything, I think, would be interesting. But that being said, I haven't gotten off my butt and tried to find it. Huh. So interesting. Really just wish yeah. we had won a championship with him so we could have just kept shouting Chips Okoye. <laughs> so, so where are you, I, Howie? Do you think do you think there's going to be how, college basketball played in 2021? I I do, and, and I'll also add. I mean, you're asking about the survey I, after just after I just painted this sort of glum picture of of the next Georgetown season. I filled out that survey and said I will be renewing my season tickets, uh, which I've done for uh, every year in the last 20 plus years. Uh, and I actually like I actually I genuinely appreciated the survey survey. I think. Steve Oliva and the ticket officer doing a fantastic job. So I thought that was kind of a, a bright note. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, like I think you can kind of read between the lines and some of the things they're considering. 
in terms of like very, very flexible ticket packages, like down to some things that like if I read between the lines, it's like, yeah, why don't we just like let you pay us if there's actually a game? <laughs> Or very flexible things like that. I personally, personally, my, my gut feeling right now is that there won't be any college basketball. And if it'll be a moot point, if there is, there won't be fans at it anyway. Um, but we'll see where the universe is in, you know, five months, six months. So guys, Akoya Gao has written a book. Oh, man. It is... It is Citizen Akoy. Basketball and the Making of a South Sudanese American. And it mentions his two years in Georgetown as being injury plagued. Mm. Well, that's probably true. Coming up next on Kente Corner. Get him on. <laughs> I would be, I would, I would love, I would listen to a podcast with a coy. Absolutely. It's really fun. Yeah. I was um, surprised. I, I was surprised he bolted when Ewing got there. Actually, was he around that late? He was at the press conference. Oh, so he was. Um, he was Louisville, Louisville, Georgetown. He was tra- transferred, then Georgetown, SMU, and then Louisville. I mean, it's quite the career. Yeah, and South Sudan in there too. So we can we can throw Juba on the list. <sighs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, um, I think maybe a week ago I wouldn't have given a hard no, but just sort of the way everything is rolling, it's hard to imagine. But I think you're going to see all the things happen. I think at some point, I think Val Ackerman on a Big East conference, like on like a Zoom call maybe like a month or two ago, talked about they wanted to have it sort of squared away by Labor Day. So I think by Labor Day you're going to get the, well, we're going to do – conference only games starting in january right and then sometime before then you're going to get the the season isn't going to happen stuff i think that that that's that that's my best guess that's that's not what i'm rooting for by the way if you're listening to this and thinking i'm just being negative i absolutely want there to be a season i want to be at every game blah 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 i don't think it's going to happen yeah i don't know more importantly i'm definitely getting this book Thank you for flagging it. I had no <laughs> idea it existed. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have known if you hadn't, uh, you know, let me know about the Akoya Gao video game tournament or whatever yeah. the heck it was that was that was going on there. Um, so, guys, so we've had Kente Corner. You guys have been a part of it for a while now, which is really cool. Is the it? Georgetown, what's that? <laughs> is it cool? It is it's something. It's cool. <laughs> It is definitely cool. Um, that being said, you know, as you know, there are two other podcasts, Georgetown podcasts with, you know, former players that are going out. You've got, I believe, Trey Dickerson and Gene Smith first started, uh, I want to say it's Hoya Locker Room. And then from that, sort of like a spinoff show, I think we have, you know, we've got Dog Talk, which I feel like has become a bigger thing over the last couple of weeks. We had Chris and Austin on here, which was really cool. So this is un- this is unbelievable. I mean, obviously the pandemic's terrible, and we all want life to be normal. But the idea that there's two Georgetown, you know, Instagram live shows or podcasts, however you want to classify them, with you know former players, is kind of unbelievable, right? I love every second of this. Love every second <laughs> of it. And I'm, I'll, you know, in the rivalry between the two, I've 
I'll be honest, I haven't listened to Locker Room Talk, and but I'm all about dog talk. Chris Wright and Austin Freeman are phenomenal. The most recent episode is on. Th- it's now on Spotify. Okay, it's, it's on iTunes. Amazing. Too, yeah. Um, I, I I did not know of all the things I've discovered during uh, the quarantine. The one I did not realize I needed in my life was a solid 90 minutes of Henry Sims just cursing up a storm on a podcast. <laughs> he is filthy. He is hilarious. He's exactly what I remember, exactly what I expected from Henry Sims. If I, if I could live with one person on a desert island who played at Georgetown, it would be Henry Sims. This, I, I, I love this guy so much. And Jason's my, my, honestly my favorite Georgetown player probably of the recent era. So this was like micro-targeted to me, maybe even more so than like the Sweetney and Braswell episode. Can we can we can we just talk about for those who haven't listened to that interview because it just it just came out probably the the best story that Henry told was he said he was going through a rough a rough stretch and I'll remove the vulgarity from this yeah let's but, see if you can do this without getting yourself in trouble Howie I won't get myself in trouble he was going through a rough a, a rough stretch and Chris and Austin pulled Henry aside this would have been Henry's junior year and they basically gave him a talking to. And Chris said, Chris Wright said, um, you know, you got to step up your game. Otherwise, you're just going to be a like a big dude who works at Pier One Imports. And <laughs> Henry, Henry, Henry said he will remember that for the rest of his life because that's like the line that kind of lit a fire under him and, and caused him to like start taking everything seriously and paved away to an amazing senior season and a trip to the NBA. And now he's about to play in South Korea. Yeah. So uh, for me, what's been really interesting, I, like if you haven't listened to the to, to the podcast, do they're they're really entertaining, they're really insightful. Um, it's it they asked a lot of great questions. They get at, like what the guys like what practices were like, like some great stories about games and stuff. Um, but they're hysterical. But one of the, it's been really interesting watching the evolution of how. Georgetown fans have reacted to these like the first couple come out and it's like universally positive like oh my gosh these are amazing and you have to hire all of these players to be on the staff immediately and as more and more podcasts go on and like more and more players are like subtly or overtly critical of different aspects of the Princeton Dolphins like wait a minute wait a minute (laughs) they're trying to sell themselves too much as as potential coaches why are they being so negative I find it really insightful like you know, there was some people talking on Twitter today because, you know, Henry and Jason and Austin and Chris in this podcast talked again about some of the what they felt were some of the limitations of the Princeton offense and how they didn't feel like it suited them as much and maybe it didn't prepare them in some ways for for pro basketball. Um, and there was some pushback. Like, you know, honestly, like it, it does help big men develop skills and they're being not generous enough. That's been an interesting dynamic. Like they've been pretty universally critical of the, of the Princeton offense. Now what's yeah. your reaction to that? Yeah. It's, really, it's just a level a level of candor that's refreshing. I mean, as as fans, everyone pretends like they have like they know what they're talking about, both in terms of in game dynamics and what the locker room dynamic is like. And uh it's just interesting to not only think about like we've got perspectives as fans, where we were during certain games, what we remember, what we wish we could forget. Hearing it from the guys who are on the court and in the locker room and in the practices, it's just a, a different perspective, whether it's positive or negative. It's just, it's refreshing because in some cases it validates the way fans were feeling. In other cases, you're like, huh, 
never realized that was the case, and that's really good insight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I have a. I mean, for me, and like I said, Chris and Austin were awesome. Hopefully, everyone listened to that. I really enjoyed it. I definitely want to get them back again. And we talked on. We talked about some of the stuff. Some of the stuff came up, and you know, I thought I feel like they're going. They're they're definitely you know, hey, we were two big time recruits. You know, if we made the NBA, it would have opened it up for more of the local kids wanted to would, would want to have kept coming to Georgetown, and they kind of put the blame on themselves. And then, like a minute later, I feel like all that blame gets shifted to the Princeton, and that just seems to me a little bit too easy of a way to kind of classify things. Because when you look at that period of Georgetown basketball, let's call it 06 to 15, you know, those 10 seasons, you know, Georgetown is really good. They make the tournament eight times, you know, they're ranked in the top 10 a lot. You know, obviously the tournament success is front loaded there. And it just seems like no one wants to give the like that style of offense. And by the way, they didn't just keep running the same plays every year. Like it evolved and tweaked depending on who was on the team. I just feel like, and you look at what's happened since, you know, Georgetown stopped playing the Princeton, or you can look at the period of time before they didn't play the Princeton. And clearly 06 to 15 is a really good run of Georgetown basketball. And all these players who have all played pro, not all in the NBA, but pretty much all these guys we're talking about played pro. And it just seems like, it's like, wow, they're just so quick to be like, you know, this offense and it was negative. And they chose to go there, right? I mean... They didn't just wake up and like, you guys got to play the Princeton, you know? So for me, it just seems a little bit too much piling on that offense. I don't, I mean, I actually don't see it that way. I, I think it's, okay. um, I, I mean, to be fair, like I, I take that with a grain of salt because they have also said like, look, we were winning. We were finishing in the, right. like we were in the top 10 every year. We were winning games in that, in that offense. So there were limitations, but, if you if you could play within the team concept and many of our guys could, it was fine. They weren't getting their their points and their stats, but but we were winning. And so I think that they they acknowledge that. They also don't they don't bash JT three. They right. they they talk about the limitations of the system, but they point out that that we were winning. They also point out that teams like the Wizards and the Lakers were playing the Princeton, like we're using the Princeton, and that was encouraging. Like when guys like Gilbert Arenas could score thirty in a game in the Wizards version of the Princeton, that was great. And they also, like, I think to the extent that they they feel a little bit of remorse, they're, they're sort of like, well, J, when JT3 started opening up the Princeton offense after they left school, they felt like that would have benefited them even more. So they wish that they were there for sort of the revamped Princeton. Um, yeah. But I, I think they've been doing it in a way, I, like, I don't, I wouldn't say that they've been bashing the Princeton offense. I think or, or bashing JT3, they just they sort of point to some of its flaws while, while acknowledging that they were winning. There's a fascinating, there's a couple fascinating exchanges in the, the Henry Sims, Jason Clark episode, but there's, there's one that I think people are going to latch onto where they ask the question, you know, knowing, like knowing what you do now, if you're doing it over again, like your recruitment, would you come to Georgetown again? And I think it's Henry. It may have been, Jay, I think it was Henry who said, you know, if, if I could go again and be with all of you guys, then yes. But otherwise, no. There's no, like, I'd rather go, I think he said Maryland or Florida or somewhere, like, he'd go somewhere else. And he was joking about, like, go to Maryland somewhere where they, like, have people take your classes for you. And they're saying, Georgetown really is a, 
a difficult school. Um, but that that one that was interesting to me. Like it, one of the questions I'm fascinated to know from them is like with regard to this offense is like. I guess there's another exchange in this episode. I guess well, I'll talk about it this way. There's another exchange in the episode where they talk about like when during your pro career did you sort of like basically like in so many words like mature and figure things out and like really like learn what your game was about. And then they all said it was like much later in their careers, only within the past few years. And I think part of the whole like Princeton thing is like they, they talked about in this episode, like a lot of them, you come to Georgetown, like you used to be in the guy in high school who gets buckets. You think you're like a bucket. And you want all these opportunities and you want to eat. And the Princeton offense is so like team oriented and you're like, feel like you're passing up open opportunities and you're not getting the shots that you think you want or you deserve. But, you know, maybe like later on in their careers, maybe they might have more of an appreciation for it, but you got to, you're, you're recruiting guys. You're going to get these guys from like 18 to 22 years of age. Right. And to some extent you have to, you know, realize you're trying to sell, you know, a college experience, a team experience to an 18 or a 19 year old kid. And I do wonder, like, I'm positive the Princeton offense was used negatively against Georgetown. And I would love to know from guys like the people like Chris and Austin and Henry and Jason, like, what were you telling people who you were taking on official visits or hosting? Right. You telling them about the Princeton offense? Like, was that something that like was actively turning people on? Um, and was that something that we could have done something about? Like, I get it. It's the system. It's what JTD was comfortable with. He did evolve it. I don't know if he did quick enough. I think that you probably still could have gotten a little bit more out of some of those teams, like pre like Otto Porter before he actually really started to switch things up. Yeah, no, that that's actually a, that's actually a really good question about what did you tell recruits? Cause if you're thinking about those guys, who would they have hosted? You have to go back in the recruiting forums and stuff like that. But you know, obviously Markel, right. Like he was, you know, that was sort of like the, the lineage of the local kids. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I've watched a lot of the, the impromptu Chris Wright just gets dog talk on Instagram live. And I've really enjoyed those. And I haven't had the time to listen to a lot, but I do see what people post on Twitter. And that's sort of where, that's sort of where I've gotten some of the information. Now you guys can tell me because you guys have done a better job listening. There was something where was it was it there was like a shooting drill and Vernon Macklin was having a problem or something. Is this something that you guys have heard? I'm trying to remember Vernon stories because there's been a few. Well, anyway, this sort of leads me to my point as obviously here I am the defender of the Princeton honor in that. I think where it really goes wrong for the Princeton is there's so many examples of guys that just don't fit in at all to that offense, right? Like, why, you know, it was always like, well, you know, uh, JT3 probably never would have recruited Roy Hibbert because that's not like, it's, you know, that's not a Princeton center, right? Like, mm-hmm. he's not going to, like, pump fake and drive and, take you know, take take a step and shoot it and that kind of stuff. But then, you you know, then later on you see, you know, you see Bradley Hayes, um, yeah, Josh Smith is a really good passer. He doesn't really seem to fit. So it just seems to me there was a lot of, and, you know, Vernon Macklin being a five-star McDonald's All-American makes total sense, right? Like you want to recruit the best kids, but it's no surprise he ended up transferring. Like he doesn't really fit that mold. And that's a guy that, you know, was drafted and played a little bit in the NBA. But I think that's where it kind of goes wrong is that they sort of reached for players that didn't fit what the what you kind of want 
out of a player in that offense, but they were getting higher recruits. So it's like, well, we're not going to pass up this guy or, or even a guy, you know, like, like, like Aaron Bowen, like when he started there, you're just like, I don't really see how this, I don't see where he fits in there, but he's, you know, a hell of an athlete, obviously, and end up having a really good career when he stayed for his um, fifth year. But I think that's kind of where it went wrong. I mean, guys like Chris and Austin and Jason, they could play anywhere, right? It was sort of the, like the next, the next level guys that you're like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, look, there, there may have been some mismatched pieces and frankly, there may have been some of the same stuff that happened to Jay Wright and Nova's program. After you taste success a little bit, you have an opportunity to get some of these better top 25 and top 50 recruits. And you're like, well, I'm not going to pass them down, even if I don't think they're, you know, a good fit for the system. And so we saw that with, with guys like Macklin and, and, and some others, but it could be other factors also. I mean, Henry Sims freely acknowledged that he didn't, he didn't know what offense Georgetown was playing until after he was coming to Georgetown. And then he found himself doing spin moves at the top of the key and says he didn't learn the offense until two and a half years in. So he was a hell of an athlete and like he, you know, he had dominated when he was younger, but it took him a long time before he felt comfortable, you know, throwing passes under the basket. Um, I also thought what, what was fascinating about just getting on talking about the drills, one of the drills they would work constantly, these guys say, uh, especially for, for guards was how to, how to shoot layups, how to do reverse layups, how to do like sort of one handed layups from different positions. Just because if you catch the ball coming off the back door, like you sure as hell better make it perfect and make that layup. Otherwise, you know, it's all for nothing. And I thought like their discussion of those drills was really interesting. Yeah, you would see if you would go to like the hoop club open practice, they would often like that they would open the practice with that drill, but they would do it pretty much every time, like the fancy layups. Yeah. Oh, you you make that back cut, it better go in. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, those those podcasts have been great, and um, hopefully they continue. I mean, one of the things I almost I was on last night with Austin, or not sorry, with uh, Chris. There weren't many people, you know, you on, on, on Instagram, it shows you like how many people are in there and it was kind of fluctuating. I was on there for maybe 20 minutes and you know, you got whatever, it's like 10 people, 20 people, five people, it keeps going up and down. And one of the things, you know, I want to, I want to ask him and maybe I'll, you know, just text him is, you know, I don't know where he, I think he was in Italy, I think. And most recently, yeah. And you know, what, when he goes back, I mean, I know he wants to keep playing for a while. He's definitely not done. You know, will, will this continue or how, you know, how can he, how can they sort of continue? Cause I think that their podcast particularly has a bunch of momentum and I think we'd all like to see it, you know, continue whenever he gets back into, into playing. Yeah, of course. Do we want to talk about some matchups? Ah, do it. Give I'm the so people what they want. Bobby. This is a rare opportunity for Georgetown to make a Sweet 16 in something. It feels amazing. It's been a it while. It does. These, these are some hard matchups, though. So let's they start. Were they were. Let's start. We got, this is, this is your, your classic 2-3 matchup. The two seed is Georgetown over Syracuse from 2013. This is the Otto Porter closing of the Carrier Dome. Not really, but you know what I mean. Um, this was Georgetown 57, Syracuse 46. Uh, Otto Porter had 33. 
you know, I believe this was the day that Carmelo Anthony's jersey was retired. So that's even that's even that much better. And the three seed here is Georgetown beating Duke on January 30th, 2010. Georgetown 89, Duke 77. This is the Obama game. Chris Wright, Austin Freeman, Greg Monroe all had over 20 points. This would be one of those games where the Princeton was working to its best. Georgetown shot 71%. And when we had Chris on a couple weeks ago, he joked that he missed a wide open layup that, you know, he was saying that if, if that layup had gone in, that Georgetown at that time would have broken some sort of, I don't know if it was a school record or a Big East record or something. He said that if that layup had gone in, and it should have, because he said he was, you know, he was busted on himself saying he was, it was like the easiest shot he had all game. It didn't go in, but, you know, Georgetown still shot. They shot about the same from the, from the field as they did from the free throw line in beating Duke, who ended up going on to win the national championship. So this is a pretty hard 2-3, right? When I, I don't know if the vote is still active on, on, on Casual Hoy on the website right now. When yeah. I look on, I think it was yesterday or maybe Saturday evening or so, these two games were separated by literally one vote. It's that close. It's a really tough one, too. Um, you, got any fun, you got any more fun box score stuff on these ones, Howie? Uh, I, I do. So, I mean, you mentioned Otto Porter had 33 points in that Syracuse game. Um, l- let me just give you some, some other stats from that game. DSR, uh, who played in 29 minutes, was one for eight from the floor uh, and one of five from three. And let's, let me see if I'm reading this correctly. Starks was Seven, two for 11. Yeah, Starks. Starks was that's right. Starks was two for eleven, one for eight from three. Um, we were seven of twenty-five from three, and five of those were Otto Porter threes. I mean, that that's that's something I completely forgot about. I mean, so Otto Porter played was the only guy on our team to play all forty minutes in the game, and he hit five threes. Um, he was. I mean, he just single-handedly won this game. I mean, the only the only other positive stat line. On our entire team, I guess there's two. It's Jabril had five assists. He was only one of five from the floor, but five assists. Um, and uh, Moses Abraham, before he was Iagba, had ten rebounds. And I do remember almost every one of those rebounds in that game. Yeah, this was, that's that's a great stat line. Like one point, ten rebounds, and two blocks. It's, it's insane. So, so this this game, by the way, has one of my favorite photos ever taken at a Georgetown game. It's the one that ended up on the front page of the Washington Post sports section. It's the one of Otto after he got fouled on the four-point play in the second half, laying in front of the bench with the entire team, like, standing over him, screaming, and Jim Burr's in the front of there with both his hands up, signaling the three-pointer. Um, it's a tremendous photo. Great. Is this, like, in, in terms of, like, individual performances in games, like, you know, Otto was, was like, 33-8 and two steals in a game that the team scored 57. And, like, how he laid out, He's basically the entire offense that day um, in such a big game. Like, where is this, like, in individual performances you've seen in Georgetown games? Well, um, on, the, on the last podcast, Ben and I were sort of talking about something of – he totally forgot about this game, but he was – you know, we're talking about, like, what's, what's the biggest Georgetown moment that, you know, like your casual fan or your, you know, someone that's not, like, you know, into box scores like, like us – and he was like, "Is you know, is it the Final Four? And I'm like, no, it's it's the Auto game 
in 2013 when the carry dome he's like oh yeah of course how did i forget that yeah i i think it's one of it's it's i mean it's easily one of the top five performances by a player since i've been paying attention which goes back to like 88 yeah i mean i'm going back just to the turn of the century and like the games that i'm they're coming to mind for me are some of the mike sweetney games i mean they showed right. the four overtime notre dame game at least once during you know the quarantine and his game against syracuse in you know three i think he did 35 and 20 in the overtime game or something like that like those are the ones that come to yeah. mind. it's really up there for just That's, like i mean completely I think- owning a game we discussed this a little bit the last time we chatted. I, for me, the two best individual performances in the last 20 years are very clearly the Otto game at the Dome and the Sweetney game in the four overtimes against Notre Dame. I think those yeah. are the top two. Yeah, it's it's oh God, it's so good too. I wish this game. I was I've been looking for three things. It, it's it, as far as I know, the full game isn't on YouTube. I don't remember if I have it on DVD or not. Um, but man, yeah, John this smells like a CBS game. It was definitely it was a CBS game, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. So Otto had twelve field goals. Georgetown as a team made nineteen. Syracuse as a team made seventeen. So pretty good. Yeah, look, I mean, not Georgetown you know, Syracuse games. What's that? <laughs> sorry, for, sorry for stepping on you. I love the pace of Georgetown Syracuse games that year. The combined point totals in the three games we played that year, 103, 100, and 113 for an overtime game. We were not exactly a far cry from the Austin Chris era. I will, you know, one, uh, not that I really feel like complimenting uh, Jim Beheim or the, the Syracuse coaching staff, but um, this will be one time I do it. What I found fascinating in those three Syracuse games uh, in 2013 and I'm sure in another later today or another pod, we'll talk about one of the other ones, but I, the, the way Syracuse defended us uh, in that zone was different in each of the games. Because the first game was when Otto just manhandled them uh, and they, they couldn't stop him. So the second time we played them in that game, that was you know, um, March 9th, 2013, the 61-39 game, their, their, their defense, um, was basically entirely focused on Otto. They would not let Otto beat us. And yeah. we we responded. Uh, it, but it was just interesting to see how the zone shifted. And then by the time we we played them at the Garden, they they realized that the one weakness we had on that squad was our inability to score down low. And so they extended the zone out. They still focused on Otto, but they pushed things out a little bit. And they basically said, Mikhail Hopkins, go and beat us. And to Hopkins' credit, Hopkins was probably like had one of his best games of the season, but it just wasn't enough. They were giving up stuff on the back end under the basket and realized that, you know, we we needed a lot more than we could, you know, we ultimately got. But, you know, the, anyway, I just thought it was fascinating the way they defended us in each of those three games. One more, one more thing for me on this game. It was uh, at the time, it was the, uh, it set the record for the largest on-campus attendance. Uh, for a basketball game, 35,012. Uh, pretty sure they broke the record the following season when they played Duke in the first year in the ACC. Um, for the record, the last three games that Georgetown played at Capital One this past season only are like 31,000 total. So, you know, picture that kind of big crowd. Yeah. The Duke game, and- I mean, so I, I'm sorry, I don't have anything else in the Syracuse games. 
I don't want to shortchange the Duke game. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, this one was just, I mean, this is really fun. I mean, like, I, I, have, I have great pictures, actually, from this game because it was, it was one of the, it was the, the snow trilogy of the 2009-2010 season. This was the middle one um, after the ODU game in, in December and then before the, the Nova game. Um, so this was, which was first, Snowpocalypse or Snowmageddon? It was Snowpocalypse. Um, so I have, a great, I have great pictures of like the huge line of students that were lined up like all the way down 7th Street, like all the way back to like practically the corner where the other metro station is, or the other metro entrance is. Um, in the snow while it's still snowing, it's like a it's kind of a really nasty day outside. But yeah, this is, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd forgotten about Chris mentioning that they almost broke the, uh, the field goal percentage record. Um, they were really on in this game. Um, I, I checked the line score. We only, we only trailed for one possession. Uh, so we trailed for 14 seconds. Um, we pretty much just beat them from start to finish. They closed a little at the end of the game. So we were by like 20. Yeah. The, the score is much more favorable than the way the game actually went. Yeah. And yeah, just a couple other things, a couple of things on, on this game. So remember this is, this was 2010. This is the year Duke won the national championship and we manhandled them from start to finish. Uh, I, I mean, the, the only unfavorable stat throughout the game is I think we had, we had, we committed 16 turnovers. So it wasn't always pretty. And I remember a lot of those turnovers came in the first half, but on the other hand, everything else was pretty. I mean, just some of these stat lines are insane. Julian Vaughn, eight points on four of four shooting, three rebounds, two assists. Greg Monroe played all 40 minutes, 21 points, five rebounds, five assists. Austin Freeman, 38 minutes, 20 points, five assists, three rebounds, eight for 11 from the floor. Jason Clark, uh, four or five from the floor, nine points, three assists. Chris Wright, 21 points, four rebounds, two assists. I mean, it's just Hollis Thompson, six points, two of three from the floor, two rebounds. Uh, the only guy who didn't hit a field goal who played more than one minute was Darrell Benjamin. Uh, and even he had three assists. So it's just absolutely unbelievable. And we did it with seven guys. Um, we beat, we, we, you know, I would say we we played Duke better than any team in the country that season. And that's the team that won the national championship and the team they beat in the national championship. We also beat up and that was Butler. And we did that. Uh, it might've been twice that year, it, at least it, once that year. It is pretty crazy. Like, like um, John was just saying how Georgia had been up by, I want to say 20 or 18. And you do have Greg Monroe playing 40 minutes, Chris Wright playing 40 minutes, Austin Freeman playing 38. So, you know, the fact that Sims couldn't even get a couple minutes in this game, right? Which I'm sure if you look through that season, I'm sure there's a lot of DNPs healthy, you know, but a little surprising that, and then, you know, Benjamin getting, getting 20 minutes, something I think was surprising to a lot of people that, you know, JT3 just really trusted him. And I think it goes back to what you said that Henry said in that this is his second year and he still didn't really know the offense. And I, I remember being really surprised at Henry's slow development at Georgetown. And I heard from some people that Henry was just really loving college. And <laughs> we, can t- we can take that for whatever we want. Right. But um, yeah, when you look at these box scores like that and you do kind of go over it, you're like, wow, like there wasn't like five minutes you could get, Henry on the on the court to sort of 
you know, he, I mean, I think Sims was a top 50 recruit, you know, it wasn't like he was, yeah. you know, well, to be liver. fair, this was, this was a, this was a year before the, you know, this was pre year one, you know, so this was, this was PPE <laughs> yeah. before PPE was a thing. So yeah. Sorry. That, that was just kind of a little bit of a sidetrack. Most important, most important stat lines in the game. Ryan Kelly, seven minutes, no point. <laughs> I like to fi- I like to find the that guy in the like the bow like the deep part of the the box score for each of these games. And Ryan Kelly, the, the Georgetown recruit Ryan Kelly, in fact, um, there he is. And you know what? Too, if you look title, at so screw me. If you look at the uh, if you look at the Duke box score, just because of how Georgetown played and how you know the kind of player Greg Greg Monroe was. Um, if you remember Duke winning the title that year, and this is when I used to pay attention to other college basketball outside of the Big East much more than I do now, Brian Zubek was like a huge part of Duke's run to the national championship, believe it or not. And in a game like this, I remember there was nobody for him to guard. He couldn't guard any of those guys. So he played two minutes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that was a weird Brian Zubek tournament. He he ended up being a guy. So who'd you who who'd you guys pick? I the, the one flaw the Duke game has is that we won by too much, so it seems boring. Um the state we didn't even mention President Obama in this whole thing too. Um the Syracuse game is so iconic and it's such an amazing individual performance. And the stage of that game being the largest, you know, home, uh, largest on campus crowd voted for the Syracuse game. Yeah, I think I also went with the Syracuse game, but this is this is a coin toss for me. It uh, really it's, is. It's really it's really really close. I mean, you're you're talking about probably our second most our second most memorable non-conference home win in the last 15 years versus arguably our best uh uh, conference road win in the last 15 years. Uh, so I, I just think, I think the Obama game got a tough matchup here and yeah. if it had been in a different region might've, you know, probably would have, would have gone on, but it still might. I think some of the voting is still going on. This is a nail biter. Yeah. All right. So what's next? Well, I didn't give who I thought was going to win that game. I think it's Syracuse, but I really, I really feel like the 2010 team is just so much better and the fact that they beat the national, the future national champs, which we don't know when we're walking out of the arena that night, I think most people would have thought Georgetown was the, you know, if you say, hey, one of these teams won the national championship, you're like, wow, Georgetown did it. Georgetown did not do it. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think I have to agree with you guys, which totally sucks. But uh, it's 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 got to be auto in front of like thirty five thousand fans or whatever it was. Carmelo Anthony, yeah. 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 Okay. Another two-three matchup. This is Georgetown beating Notre Dame in the Big East semis, eighty-four, eighty-two in two thousand seven. Jeff Green, big Hoyas comeback, and then the three seed is Georgetown beating UConn, seventy-two, sixty-nine in two thousand eight. This is the Roy Hibbert. Oh my God! Roy Hibbert hits a three-pointer to win the game against kind of a nondescript UConn bunch. Yeah, so we've we've covered the UConn game before, I believe. Yeah. So we're gonna concentrate on the, the Notre Dame game. This is the one for me. Like this is 
what started the whole doing or like being interested in brackets, old game stuff for me. Cause one of the first things I did back in March when everybody was, had been sent home from work was I think one day I was bored on Twitter and I was talking about how I thought this Notre Dame game was maybe the most under appreciated good Georgetown game of the past like 20 years. Like for as good a game, like a competitive game and like it stands on its own it didn't get talked about as much as some of the other games. And so I made a list of like the most underrated games or like made some deep cuts. And I think that's the first time I ended up on the podcast, actually. Um, this, is a, this is one of the more like tense games I remember because I watched it with a big group of people. And like, we're, we're down 14 points in the first half. I mean, Notre Dame was basically unconscious. Um, and like it went from, you know, like, wow, we are just up against the team that cannot miss. And are we just going to get blown out of the Big East tournament? And we got it really, we, we ended on a good run. We were pretty close at halftime. And then the last, like, like about 10 minutes or so, it's basically almost like a back and forth one possession game. Like the last like five, six, seven minutes of the game. It's that tense and that close. And it's basically just the team's trading haymakers. It's like Jeff Green making all kinds of crazy shots. And it's like some combination of Russell Carter and, and Tory Jackson, like you know, basically being unstoppable off the dribble. It's, it's a really good ending to a really good game. Um, and of course we have to acknowledge this is this podcast after all Friday night at the garden. There's really nothing like it. Yeah. I wasn't there. Unfortunately, I was there the following night. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, so I, I think, I think big picture before getting into each game. I mean, this is this is another really close matchup because you've got what I think is the probably our best, like our most exciting and best Big East tournament win in the last uh, twenty years, um, going up against arguably uh, the most exciting conference home win during that same stretch. Uh, it's close on that on that second one, but 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 that's why this is that's why this is a this is relatively close. You know, all of that said, that I mean, I was at both of these games. That that win against Notre Dame, I, just Friday night at the Garden, to send us to the Big East Championship for the first time since 1996, having trailed by 14, and we just talked about two of the most sort of iconic or storied individual performances: the Otto game at Syracuse, the Sweetney game against Notre Dame, and the four overtime. Maybe number three or four on that list is Jeff Green's performance in this game against Notre Dame. 40 minutes, played all 40 minutes, 30 points, 12 rebounds, three assists. Uh, he was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he was all over the place in this game. And not to be outdone, Patrick Ewing Jr., um, 15 points on 7 of 11 shooting. Patrick Ewing Jr. was not much of a scorer. I don't like 15 points. It, it, I don't think it's it was his career high in a game, but it was probably his second or third highest scoring total um, uh, in his career. I mean, he was spectacular in that game also. So huge games from both of those guys. This was really fun to watch. Uh, I'm glad I got to be there for it, and I would love another game like that sometime soon. <laughs> you, yes. you, know, when you, you know, when you when you make a deep run, like to a, whether it's a, a final four national championship, however far it is you get, chances are at some point in that run, you're going to have, you're going to end up on the right side of some what if moments. 
right? Like I was, I, why I just saw looking at the highlights from the most recent NCAA tournament, remembering like the, the Virginia's win over Purdue and how regulation ended. Like it was kind of a crazy ending that UVA got in the overtime. I feel like Virginia um, had like five straight games like that. They did, yeah. Was Virginia in the game that had the foul <laughs> at the end of regulation in the final four too? Yeah. Is that Virginia Auburn? Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, so, but there's like, this is the first of like three of these big, like, what if we'd been on the other side of a really close kind of 50 50 thing, right? Like, what if Russell Carter makes that three pointer at the end of the, this, this game? Like, he got a good shot off. He actually pump faked or something into it and got a good open shot off. And like, the way the team's been shooting, man, probably could have gone in just as easily. And you never get that, you know, Big East tournament win. And Georgetown would still not have a Big East tournament title in the past 31 years. Um, and then you have, you know, what if Jeff Green either gets called for traveling or doesn't make the shot against Vanderbilt and you're just out in the Sweet 16 again? And what happens if Wayne Ellington makes his three-pointer in the Elite Eight? It's Ellington, right, at the end of regulation? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, like, you just – you sometimes you just – it's a combination of being really good in close games and just getting a little bit lucky. It is, too. And this this box score, since we're – Digging in deep here. Um, yeah, Jeff Green, 12 for 14 from the line. Georgetown as a team was just 17 for 20 from the line. So that's the aggressiveness and the respect you want given, you know, by the refs. And this is another one of those games, and I feel like we could dedicate an entire podcast to it of, okay, so Roy Hibbert fouls out, which is why Patrick Ewing Jr. plays so much and why his 15 points are a big deal. You know, Hibbert doesn't get to the line, right? So apparently no one fouled him. Okay. And here he is, big, you know, Big Roy picking up five fouls. You know, I know we talked about this, I think, when we talked about the Davidson game in one of our sadness brackets, but I just feel like he got like no respect when he was when he was in college as far as being a big man. I, I guarantee I'm not gonna pay an official to come down here, okay? <laughs> but like you're really telling me in 21 minutes nobody found Hibbert around the rim? Okay, sure. I don't know. That, that was a very, like, at least the highlights I remember. It's a very, it was a very perimeter-oriented, like... It was oh, God. Game, what are you, like, like, related to Jim Burr or something? I don't remember if Jim Burr worked this game. John Cal did not. He worked the <laughs> final that year. Um, I feel like Bob Donato probably worked this game. It feels like a Bob Donato game. Um, yeah, like, I don't know. Like, it just felt like... Like the, like the way this game played out wasn't quite a Roy Hibbert kind of game. Now the following night, that was a Roy Hibbert kind of game. Um, right. I don't know. But but yeah, so, you know, the fact that the year before, just the ridiculous amount of heartbreak in that semifinal loss where it looked like Georgetown was going to the Big East, yeah. you know, final for the first time in 10 years to, if, the, if there had been back-to-back, Friday night in the gardens like that, that would have been really tough to take. Now, maybe, maybe that's what the 2008 team would have needed to show up prepared against Pitt, you know, whatever. But I think the way that the 2006 semi ended against Syracuse for the 2007, and I'm pretty sure Notre Dame in the Big East, they never got to the final, right? They never did. Yeah. Which is crazy because they've been in the ACC not for too long and they've, they've been to a couple. They may have yeah. even won one. Yeah, it's like Notre Dame has never been to a final. I think Marquette still hasn't been to a Big East final. Well, they didn't even come close in 2010, I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that this this matchup has to go to the Notre Dame game. 
getting back to the Big East final for this program was they were just out for so long to get back in. Jeff Green's performance, it's it's definitely this game. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I to, yeah. To me, it's it's definitely the Notre Dame game. I I, I agree with that also. I just think in in the U, in the UConn game though, I, I just want to flag. I mean, that we had a talented team, but UConn had a ridiculously talented team. I mean, to, to keep in mind. So in this game, Hashim Thabit finishes with seven points. He didn't do in 29 minutes. He didn't do much of anything. Stanley Robinson, who, in the words of Chris Wright, he's nice. I mean, he's, <laughs> Stanley Robinson is. Stanley Robinson played 34 minutes, scored two points. Like, to me, that was unbelievable. Um, it, it was really only a couple of guys on that UConn, in that UConn game that did anything. It was, it was A.J. Price and Jeff Adrian. I remember Jeff Adrian killed us. He was dunking left and right in that game. That's how he would score. But um, just astonishing to me that guys like Stanley Robinson and Sabit really couldn't get going in this game. And it kind of cemented Big Roy as you know, someone who would end up being sort of a better inside presence than those guys who might've been more athletic, but just couldn't do as much as Roy weren't as skilled as him. Yeah. The weird thing is that we all voted for the Notre Dame game. The weird thing is last time I checked the vote, it's like two to one for the UConn game. That must be like an age thing. I think we're all about the same age, right? Games were like less like. Nine oh no, you're five. right. Yeah. No, you're right. The games are. Yeah. Okay. Scratch that. Weird. I mean, so some of it, some of it is recent. Some of it is recency bias. Some of it is like people will just have gone to the home games and not the yeah. big tournament games. Some of it is also like the if you're responding to this on Twitter, you're a more recent graduate and you're definitely younger. And if you're responding on the web, I bet the numbers are closer on like the casual website. Uh, check, yeah. One before um, leave this matchup, one more thing. You know what the greatest like feeling in the world is? About like thirty minutes or so right after you win a game like the Notre Dame game. Yeah. Like but, but like that was the first game of a double hair, too. So you got to probably stay for the second game. Like that like thirty minutes or so and you're still on that high after winning a game like that is really awesome. Well, I mean, except when you're scrounging around for tickets, you know. Uh, I think I was doing that actually now that I think about it. That's actually that's actually a good point, or not a good point, but something I like to talk about. So if you're in a setting where there's two games, you know, it's a doubleheader, or you've got an NCAA tournament situation where it's a doubleheader, you know, a break, and then a doubleheader, what's your preference to when you want your team to play? Um, don't care at all. Really? Yeah, I, I don't care, yeah. Are you guys, are you, are you guys, are you guys serious? So for me, Serious. yeah, and and I and I will actually if if there's a game before, like I'm fine watching a game. I'm I, I would be fine going to the biggest tournament, watching games that Georgetown wasn't in before we were scheduled to play, whether it was just in a different, um, you know, at a different time. But after our game's over, though, I just want to get out and either celebrate or um, wallow. Uh, but I would love hanging around beforehand. I really wasn't interested in staying and watching games after hours and nightcaps. I will say, so having experienced, like, I've gone to, now I'm trying to think how many tournaments I've gone to, I think five. I think when when Georgetown is in the afternoon session, I like the two o'clock-ish game. When they're in the evening session, I like the seven game. Like, I don't want to be there, like, till super late and 
to in the afternoon session, I, like you gotta go, you gotta go have like a drink, get them to eat. Like I'll usually roll in like halfway through the first half of the opening game and watch that. And when the arena is still a little bit empty, um, so it's personal preference. I mean, and I guess maybe I'm thinking more of the NCAA tournament, but they both work. I think there's something to be said to, particularly if, if you're there as a fan. And like, let's say you've got tickets all day and your team plays at noon and they lose. And you're just like, you know, like, like John just said, how great it is that 30 minutes after the win. Well, when you play like the early game and you're just, you're just out, you're just like, well, you just start, you know, contemplating like, you know, why am I here? What a waste of time. But like, at least if your team loses that first day, you at least get to sort of, you know, there's like a buildup to it. It's not just like, well, the tournament's still going on and I'm all pissed off that my team's terrible, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I think that there's something to that. Let me tell you where I was 30 minutes after the end of the FGCU game. I was in Delaware. I was heading south on 95, getting the hell out of there. I mean, I no, look, you're, you're right. If all things considered, I would rather play, whether it's the NCAA tournament or the Big East tournament, I'd rather play as late, like as late as possible yeah. in the tournament. Like I, I would just, I would rather watch other games and like sort of enjoy them, realizing that Georgetown still has a chance, and yeah. that anytime a team is eliminated, I can say, well, at least Georgetown's not eliminated. Because even exactly. when we lost that game to, even when we lost that game to VCU in 2011, it was the last possible game of the first round games, so I could actually enjoy the first couple days of the tournament. Uh, because we hadn't been eliminated yet. So I appreciate, like, you know, let us play as late as possible so we can enjoy as much as we can. Because if we lose first thing, well, I mean, what we've been doing recently is losing on Tuesdays or Wednesdays in recent history. So it really takes the fun out of the entire tournament. Forget Friday. Yeah. I think it's best to just sort of extend that. Because I know, I know when they lost to Ohio, there was a game coming up, and I just wanted to just, like, walk off a bridge, right? Like, I just... You know, I think what was it? Was it Tennessee and San Diego State? I think we're getting ready. Uh, which year was this, Bobby? This is up in Providence. Yeah, it was Tennessee and San Diego State. Yeah, and I I remember just being so despondent and just. <laughs> so I would have much rather enjoyed that Tennessee San Diego State game at seven thirty, and then Georgetown comes on last because then the day is over, right? No matter what happens, win or lose, it's over. You're not sitting there with your friend from Boston who's looking at you like, is this guy going to be okay? And <laughs> Yeah. So, so if we want to do a sadness one, we have pretty good, pretty good intro there. There is a 2-3 matchup we got here. Georgetown falling to VCU. Um, which apparently was the last game of the night in Chicago. I don't totally remember that, but I believe you. <laughs> you're, you're, um, you're right. 74-56. And going up the three-seed 2007 Final Four loss to Ohio State, 67-60 to on March 31st. I remember being so excited driving down there for no reason other than just to be like, wow, there's a chance to watch a Georgetown play in April, which means <laughs> if, if, if you're doing that, you're doing something right. Um, so but, uh, to, to our point about watching games, this was the first game of the doubleheader. I did not. I stayed for about ten minutes of the UCLA Florida game. Yeah, I think I walked out, sold my tickets for whatever anybody paid. What was it Florida UCLA? And yeah. you know, it was just you know, I couldn't. Yeah. 
I mean, so the, the, these games were just absolutely awful. Um, <laughs> and it's to, to me, I, I uh, it, it's hard to say which one was worse. But if we're starting with like you know instant emotions, like I. I'm going to say the Ohio state loss in the final four made oh, yeah. me feel worse right after the fact. Um, I, the, the VCU, the VCU game, let's keep in mind, like the, the buildup heading into that game was, is Chris Wright going to play? And if he play, if he plays with that broken hand, is he going to be any good? And, you know, but I think we had, we had, <laughs> we had sort of, we had seen this one coming since that home loss to Cincinnati, and then we lost yeah. at home to Syracuse, we didn't do well in the Big East tournament. I mean, so this was this was coming. Like we 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 didn't necessarily think we'd get blown out by VCU, a VCU team that ended up going to the Final Four, by the way. But like what it, like in what three weeks earlier looked like we would be a three seed, we had already dropped to a six seed. If we didn't lose this game, we would lose the next one. I think what makes this one particularly painful uh is the fact that this is the last game that our guy you know guys like chris wright and austin freeman shout out dog talk play <laughs> um now the the ohio state game on the other hand was it was a it was a close game a relatively close game throughout it was a game we had a chance to win it was a game that was uh obviously our first trip to a final four uh since 1985 uh my seats were absolutely atrocious. Same. Uh, but it just felt like we it felt like we were in that game and we should have just done better. And if you know, if if Hibbert hadn't been in foul trouble, if you know, if Jeff Green had even a halfway decent game, we then we win this game and play in the championship game. Also it was my birthday weekend and that sucked. Yeah. It never, like this game, the weird thing about this Ohio State game, and I've, I've actually, sometime relatively recently, I watched because the, the full game, like it's the final four game, of course, the full game's on YouTube. It, the game is never, like, it was never a double digit game at any point. Like, no team was up by 10. I didn't, I, I forgot, we actually led for like a minute or so in the second half, like pretty early on. But this game, like, even rewatching it, like, never felt like we were going to win this game. Like there was something cosmically that was just not right about this. It never felt like we were gonna like flip the switch and make a small comeback and like turn the game around. It just felt like talking about VCU. No, Ohio State. Ohio State. I yeah. We we were trailing throughout. I don't know if it always felt like we were gonna lose, but you're you're right in the sense that like we never felt comfortable throughout the game. I think that's right. Comfortably numb. Yeah, and yeah. you know. Hibbert, Roy had 19 points. Greg Oden had 13. Like, it felt like they were never on the court at the same time. They were both in foul trouble. Like, we were kind of deprived of that. Guess how many free throws Roy shot? Not a lot, I bet. Zero. Yeah. This also has, I mean, we get on. Nope, I'm wrong. He was one for four. There you go. We get on, it's sort of a recurring thing in Georgetown standard. We get on John Cowell a lot. He did not work this game. But I think for me in 20 years, the worst call against Georgetown is the one Ted Valentine makes on the blocking foul on Jeff Green in the second half when Greg Owen almost demolished him. Um, Ted Valentine called that foul, I believe, just like five minutes ago while we were on this podcast. 
um, it was such an incredible, like the ball, I'm almost positive the ball, like bounced off the rim, like landed practically on like the third row of the stands and it had landed before Ted Valentine blew the whistle on that. And that was actually, I mean, that was the point in the game where it was like a four or five point game. It might've been Jeff's third or fourth foul too. It was and his fourth. That's a fat, that is a foul that completely changes. And with number of fouls Odin had in that game, he might've fouled out on that for all I know. Um, Odin had four that fouls. Is, yeah, that is a foul that completely changed a game. Um, well, I cannot tell cannot tell you how happy I am that Ted Valentine has not worked Big East games in like twenty years. Um, he's still kicking it around. We've had him in other games, including a tournament game. But we, I'm so glad to be rid of Ted Valentine. Can we, I mean, can we do like like how we talked about Patrick Ewing's big contributions in that Notre Dame game. You know, Georgetown's bench didn't score. Patrick Ewing played 17 minutes. Um, Jeremiah played 13. But, you know, we could have like a Georgetown unsolved mysteries, 30 for 30, whatever you want to call it. You know, Green played 40 minutes. He was four for five. You know, and maybe this is where someone could come in and tell me it's all the Princeton's fault, I guess. But, you know, Summers found a way to go one for 10, right? So no, I look. That's you're right. No, just and doing some quirky box score things. Look, and if you listen to the Jeff Green interview on Dog Talk, he owns it. He, I mean, he's just pretty much. I didn't play well in that game. Yeah, like he 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 didn't he didn't get his points in that game. Forty minutes, nine points. You're right. He was our best player on that team. He needed to do more. Um, yeah. That said, you're you're right to point out. I mean, you just we talked about Patrick Ewing Jr. in that Notre Dame game having 15 points playing really, really well. Our bench, a total of a total of 39 minutes, zero points on only 0 for 2 shooting. Yeah. I mean, that is that is un, that is a remarkable statistic. And you're absolutely right to single out Dewan Summers too. Dewan was one for ten, 0 for four from three. It's hard that season for us to win a basketball game when Dewan doesn't hit a single three. And that's not you know, I mean Dewan had a hell of a run that season. Um, so it's hard to criticize him, especially since he was, he's a freshman, um, you know, but he was one for 10 in that game. He didn't, he didn't have a good game period. I mean, he had three points in three points in 30 minutes. So it's, 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 it's hard to win when, you know, when Jeff and Dewan combined for, for 12 points in 70 minutes and your bench puts up a big fat zero. There it is right there. I love that we've spent almost no time talking about the VCU game because I, my stance on this is that I basically refuse to acknowledge that this game exists. Um, it's like my favorite, like, you know, the, the UConn account, no escalators, like my favorite recurring bit that they did over the past several years is like they steadfastly refused to acknowledge that they shared a conference with East Carolina. They would always refer to East Carolina as like a non-conference game. I steadfast, I just, we're just, we, we might have played VCU like in a non-conference game at some point in the early 2000s, but I know nothing of an NCAA tournament appearance. Um, this is, of the 32 games that are left in this bracket, this is the least memorable one for me. I can't remember a damn thing about this game. Were you, I looked at I looked in the box score. I was not, no. I was watching it with some friends who, who were angry. Let, let, me, let me give you a little, like, just, we're just back to the quirky numbers in the box scores. Oh, this box, I look at this box score. This box score is a trash fire. I, I, I mean, but who, who are your favorite, who are among your favorite guards from those Georgetown teams over the stretch of, you know, two, 2008 to 2012? Who are your favorite all of them were on three dog guards? Talk this week. <laughs> it, 
They were. So Chris Wright, Austin Freeman, Jason Clark. Chris Austin. Now keep in mind, Chris is playing with a broken hand, so we can't we can't knock him. But Chris Austin, Jason Clark, some of our more like prolific heroes uh, during that stretch. Those guys were combined 0 for 16 from three. 0 for 0 for 16. We had we had literally one guy. I mean, Austin for the game total was. How about Chris? Chris and Austin together field goals, six for 27. And we had pretty much one guy do anything in that game, and that was Hollis Thompson. Hollis had a number of ridiculous games, by the way, and this was one of them. 26 points, 8 of 10 from the field, hitting four threes. Hollis Thompson kind of matched Brandon Roselle in this one, who also had 26 points, but he hit six threes. I mean, that was Brandon Roselle's performance out of nowhere, knocking stuff down left and right, and and our inability to respond was – I mean, they punched us in the gut, and we just never responded. Yeah. But that said, Ohio State was worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I, I would vote for Ohio State again because I refuse to acknowledge VCU. But that really really was a painful loss. Like, I mean, for the the great ride that they had leading up to um, that Final Four appearance, and I almost – um, ended up writing for, for, I think, John Reagan's site. I almost ended up writing like a series of like essays or whatever on like all the Saturdays that led up to that Saturday of the Final Four. Because um, it started like, there's about seven Saturdays in a row that led up to that. It started with the Marquette game, I think, that was the, when they did the 100 year celebration. But like every Saturday after that was like some really important, like mostly, I think maybe even all of the games are on this bracket. Um, up leading up to that one. And so it was a really nice, fun ride. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine. I'm like the Marta of all things. I took Marta when I was in the lab. Um, this is, yeah, the, for me, the VCU game, it, it just, you know, it, it helped that they made the final four. I think, you know, if, if they, if this was another Ohio where they just lose their next game and look like crap, you know, it's, I think it's harder to wear. I think it's easier to wear this because you know Chris Wright's not healthy, right? And then VCU ended up being a thing, you know? And I'll say this. I have terrible guts, right? Like, I have a gut. But, like, my gut was I thought Georgetown was going to struggle more with USC's big guys. Because, remember, VCU played in the playing game. Yep. So... I remember being concerned about USC and I definitely had the wrong, the wrong feeling on that. But I will say this for the Ohio state game. If you remember in that tournament, uh, Tennessee should have beat Ohio state. No, you Xavier. It was Xavier. Uh, Yeah. That was, that was a Xavier. No, Xavier was, this was in the second round. Xavier was up like, Six or seven points with two minutes to go, and and Ron Lewis hit a three to tie the game and send it to overtime. And that's yeah. this was on St. Patrick. This was uh, yeah. St. Patrick's Day, two thousand seven. And this was preceded by Xavier missing the front end of a one and one that should have been two yep. shots for an intentional foul because, and I know this because Bobby, which official didn't call the intentional foul? You know what I'm going to say, John Cal. And that was Sean, Sean Miller on the sideline, too. Yes. 
Well, so I think this might be one of those chances. I know it's hard in life these days for everyone to say, like, maybe we were both right. But in the Sweet 16, Ohio State escapes Tennessee. They win 85-84. And I want to say Tennessee was up 84-80. So you're right. You guys are right in that Xavier in the second round, it was overtime win for the Buckeyes. But in the in the Sweet Sixteen, they beat Tennessee by one, and I remember I remember that game and just being like they have to lose because you could you know you could obviously see where where the brackets were going and that was who Georgetown was going to play in the Final Four, and I remember being really pissed at Rick Barnes and company. No, it wasn't it wasn't Barnes then. No, yeah, it was yeah Barnes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Alas. Never would have thought. Rick Barnes in Tennessee? Rick no, Barnes it's Pearl. Left tech? No, Rick Barnes is at Texas then. Yeah, I'm wrong on that. It's Pearl. Barnes is at Tennessee now. Sorry. Sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. look, that, 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 but that, ten, that, those Tennessee teams were pretty good. Like, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I might have felt like we, I don't even know if I was clearly, it, it was that Xavier loss that really would have been like a huge, I mean, it's not like we had any idea that we were going to get to the final four, but that, that Xavier loss was dis- absolutely disappointing because they had that game wrapped up. Yeah. And, and also, I, just for one quick sec, VCU, now that I knocked our guard play, not to be outdone, our starting big men were Lubick and Julian Vaughn, 41 minutes, two points. 41 minutes, two points. I so mean, basically that's what just, you're we, saying is it's amazing that Georgetown got to 56. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't the best trip I mean, to Chicago. Yeah, look, I'll tell you that. How, how about how about this? Give me another. We had twenty. Our starters scored twenty-seven. Our bench scored twenty-nine. Our starters scored twenty-seven. Hollis Thompson scored twenty-six. Yeah. Give me another to... Georgetown game in which our bench scored scored more than our starters. I can only think of like one. But which is what? I, I mean that. I, I know it's happened before because I've written about okay. it, and I, I don't remember the game, but yeah, but yeah. it it was like a non it was a it was a nothing non conference game. But anyway, I'd say that's probably one of the one of the things that comes out of these old games is the scrutiny over the box scores, and then being like, "Wow, that happened!" <laughs> yeah, you know, and when you say Georgetown's bench scored twenty nine. You're talking about Hollis Thompson for 26 and Markell made a three. Yep. <laughs> which, by the way, which, by the way, is one more three than Jason Clark, Chris Wright, and Austin Freeman made combined. Well, I think everyone knows my stance on this is that when Chris Wright got hurt, you say, hey, you know what? It's the end of the season. Markell, here's the keys. You know, the strategy they went with, you know, obviously you can easily say it was wrong based on how it went. But I thought in the moment, I'm like, why are they just not putting Markell in? Just being like, all right, all right, freshman, let's go. I mean, another interesting retrospective, by the way, is, I mean, look at Henry Sims' senior year. I, I mean, Henry was on that team. Henry wasn't playing in that game. Or if he played, he played almost almost no minutes. He I played mean, five. Needed five minutes. We needed We needed senior year Henry in that game and then looking look up and down that roster i mean our roster was stacked i mean we had we had markel hollis and henry 
Uh, we, we had two NBA guys on the bench in that game, uh, and we still couldn't even put up a fight. That That's not even bringing to light Jarrell Benjamin's cup of coffee with, I believe, <laughs> the Nuggets? Yes. Will the Georgetown's bench like this year? <laughs> I don't know, but Chris Wright's jersey has to be retired. Retire his jersey. Let's oh, go. yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, easy. that's a better that's a better note to, to end on. Guys, I gotta get out of here. Um please don't screw it up while I'm gone. Um don't be too sad. I believe the only other person that's done this is Ben Standig. So you're pulling a standig. Oh man. Uh, I hate to be the guy who pulls a standig, but I really do gotta get out of here. So I mean I disappeared without telling you and reappeared. <laughs> That is like that is true. Like well, yeah, um, Harry and I can do one more game. We can't leave because you're – we can't let you dictate when this podcast ends. No, no, absolutely not. All right. Good luck, guys. Don't be too sad with this one, whatever it is. It's not going to be sad. What do you say? We do, do one more madness and get out of here? Let's take it home. Let's do it. Can't end on the sadness. Um, this is a pretty tough one. The these these two three matchups, which usually these are great Sweet Sixteen matchups, and the casual Hoya bracket is no different. Um, two three Georgetown beating Pitt is the two. This is the Hoya's first Big East tournament championship, which is crazy to say. Since 1989, they haven't won one since this 2007, where they just crush Pitt, and the three seed is Georgetown just taking it to Ohio State. I want to say this game is in Dayton. I should know that. I was there. This is this game yep. is in Dayton. This is second round. Ohio State was the two seed. Georgetown was the seven. It was not close. And another oddity, only four Hoyas scored, and they got to 70. Right? I mean, that's just that's Yeah. Just this is... Uh... See, it's, it's interesting. So here's an example. Like, if... If we had had, so so in my view, like the, I would possibly take the Obama game over both of these. I would take the Otto Porter game over both of these. Um, it's all so about I, seeding, I think though. These, I know. I think so. I think these are. This is a a weak two seed and a weak, and a weak three seed. But what's interesting is the the one thing that characterizes both of these games is, it's Roy Hibbert. I mean, Roy Hibbert was dominant. In, in both of these games. And these are, um, these are arguably, I mean, these are clearly two of his top five performances at Georgetown. Um, I think the, the one that was most interesting about the, the Ohio State win uh, in the second round there was just so unexpected. I mean, he, it, he just sort of came out of nowhere. And for the first time, he really looked like he could go to the NBA, I thought. I was just I was just gonna say that after the tournament, I thought, well, that that's it for Roy, <laughs> right? Gonna go start yeah. making money. Yeah, I mean, because you know, even even that, remember that was 2006. I mean, that's the year we we beat Duke, and that's it's the Duke game where Jeff Green emerges as like a guy who could go pro, and I think he even said that and. And dog talk, he you know points to that game as like then he knew he could be something special. Um, but you don't really start to think that about Roy, I think, until that Ohio State.
win. He had showed he had shown some flashes, but he kind of put it all together in that game. You really got a feel for the offense. Um, and then the following year against Pitt, I mean, he just I thought he dominated Aaron Gray, and they just kept feeding him the ball down low. Um, neither one of these games was particularly close. Um, I mean, and if I'm if I'm voting for one, I would give it to. It's got to be the biggest championship, first one since uh, 1985. Um, so, but it it was more of a, you know, it wasn't like it was an exciting game because we just dominated throughout. Uh, it was more of a sort of coronation, like a deserving coronation after being away from the top for so long. Yeah, it was hard. But I think both of like, both of these games have the. I can't believe what I'm seeing, but I want to keep seeing it for another 20 minutes. You know, it's almost like like 40 minutes for each of these games wasn't enough because in the pit game, you know, like, you know, they hadn't even been to a Big East tournament championship since 1996 and they lost to Connecticut right at the end. Um, between 89 and 96, they had been to a bunch of Big East finals. They just kept losing, but they were at least getting there. And to get back and just to leave, like, you know, based on what had happened the night before, we've already talked at length about that Notre Dame win where, you know, and even in the quarterfinals, they kind of, you know, Villanova hung hung tough on them in the the one eight game or the, the one nine. And to, to come in and, you know, Pitt had been, in, you know, Pitt had been a regular in the Big East final playing UConn a bunch to do what they did, holding Pitt to 42 points. Just so ridiculous. But then in the Ohio State game, you know, I think if I said, hey, Howie, here's the deal. Bowman's not going to score today. What would you have said? L. Right. Uh, you know, l- let me let me let me take it a step further here. So <laughs> we, we Brandon Bowman, Jonathan Wallace, Jesse Sapp. That's a combined 62 minutes, I think. Uh, okay. uh, let me see if my math is correct here. We won 62 minutes. Jesse Sapp, Brandon Bowman, Jonathan Wallace, zero points. Combined for zero points. That is unbelievable. Bowman 0 for 6. Uh, Wallace only took two shots, missed them both. Sapp only took one shot and missed it. But, I mean, we, on a roster, we, were, we literally only played seven guys for basically that whole season. Seven guys and three of those guys went scoreless over the course of 62 minutes, and we yeah. won this game by 18. Just goes to show you how style lines can often be misleading. And it was a road game. And it was a road game. You know, you're you're playing Ohio in Ohio. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I remember in that moment not knowing a ton about Ohio State, and obviously, you know, they would play them again next year, and you knew a lot about that team because. Odin and Conley were big time recruits, you know, but it was, it was, it was just, it was just unbelievable. It, it, it seems weird. Like you said, not to pick, you know, get into the sweet 16 for the first time since um, 2001. It seems weird to pick the other game, but the other game is, you know, you're winning your first bit, you know, Georgetown was the beast of the East. Like that was, the conference started. It was Georgetown centric. Georgetown was that was the guy that you know the team, and to finally get one of those again, I think just has has to advance here. Um, 
if you want to end on just one more thing about I'd, I'd written down, when we were talking about dog talk and when Chris and Austin were in school, that's kind of when, at least for me, that's when I realized Twitter and kind of, kind of got into Twitter and I'd, I'd always followed them. Um, as time has gone on now, Twitter's super popular. There's, you know, there's, I think this year I tried to follow TikTok for a second because of McClung and decided like, this is just ridiculous. Um, I'm not surprised that they're doing what they're doing. Do you have any sort of other duos that you could see doing something like this? Doing a podcast? Yeah. Just sort of like two other Georgetown classmates. Like, could you see anyone else like, or not, not, I'm I'm not saying like, do you think they'll do it, but who do you think would come off together as a a good duo? Oh, I mean, you know, what makes Chris and Austin effective is like Chris is, sort of got that effusive magnetic personality and Austin is sort of like the straight man yeah. Um, who's more relaxed. I mean, to be honest, like that's kind of why of, of all the interviews, I really liked Braswell and Sweetney because um, Braswell's sort of, you know, got that energy to him in the same way that Chris Wright does. And, and, you know, Sweetney is much more reserved. Not that I see Braswell and Sweetney doing their own pod, but I kind of liked uh, how, how it wasn't, the conversation doesn't get too crowded. With Henry, with Henry and Jason and Chris and Austin, it got to be um, a little too much, uh, too many voices, too many big voices in the room. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, I it's it's hard. I'm gonna to go ahead and tell you in that sort of medium. I'm gonna go ahead and tell well, you based on. So I started covering the team right at the end of that 2011 season, and I've been doing it since then for various places. Who I think would actually do a pretty good job of playing off each other, and they used to do it sometimes when we would come interview them is uh, Starks and Lubick. Starks has that same kind, not like for like on Chris Wright, but he's, he could talk. He's good at talking. And him and Lubick would mess with each other a lot. Now I'm not saying that they're the same level of friends like Chris and Austin were as far as, you know, they, you know, clearly Markel and Nate didn't grow up in the same part of the country and all that stuff, but they kind of, they, I think would have a good enough, uh, back and forth and you know they're they're both not like a lead guy right so i think i think that's who i could see doing something like that as well um you definitely couldn't have one with auto was a little bit too too i, uh, I mean i i think quiet. markel and Nate would be great um i found myself in uh in China on a bus with those guys. Uh, okay. And I learned that Nate is a huge Seinfeld fan. So I respect that. <laughs> um, but Markel and Nate are both well-spoken good guys. Like I could, yeah. I could see them thrive, thriving in that medium too. Um, but I've, I've always been surprised yeah. that even at the time, I, I want to say when, when Markel was in school, that somebody was running like a fake Markel Starks account where like some of us told Georgetown about it. We're like, Hey, Hey Max, like, I'm pretty sure this is not Mark. This is not Markel. So for as outspoken as he would be, and this is at a time where we would basically, you know, all of Markel's from, you know, sophomore, junior, senior, they always brought him out every week. We got to talk to him a lot and they brought out Lubick as well. And Hopkins, like the last, the last two years, I want to say, but, uh, so I feel like we like we got to know them a lot, and I'm just surprised that you know Markel's been playing overseas. I feel like he's been really quiet as far as any sort of presence that I'm at least aware of, and I've always sort of been surprised by that. I, I feel like there's been times where like Nate Lubick has chimed in on like 
you know, a Twitter thread or, you know, he's sort of like out of nowhere, I'll drop like a hilarious comment. But Markel's just kind of out there. I think there's like a, there's like this weird Markel Starks, like fan update account. It'll like, hey, you know, this is what he's doing in Poland or in Belarus or wherever he's playing. Um, I was just a little surprised he's sort of gone away. Yeah, no, I mean, me too. But he'll he'll be back. I mean, he's I, I can so. see him being like a good ambassador for the program. But I mean, both of those guys, both of those guys, I could see doing good in this role. I could see Lubick as having like a sort of dark comedic personality, and uh, Starks being a good interviewer. Oh yeah. Um, so I guess this is it for us. I don't know if you have any bear stories, but I think we're gonna gonna probably roll out of here. Uh, not much. It just occurred to me though, those, that Ohio, we just finished talking about two Ohio state games that the, the 2006 Ohio state game. I, I remember thinking at one point, this is sort of revenge for Ohio state in 2007. Cause we knocked them out of the tournament the year the before. The team is like completely different, but it's exactly. Yeah. The, the team is completely different. One of the guys on that team was, I mean, so that, that team was, was all Terrence Styles and JJ Sollinger. Sollinger yeah. was a first round draft pick. He did nothing in that game. He scored five points. I mean, it was, that game was just all Hibbert, Jeff Green, and I mean Jeff Green's style line is ridiculous. We just talked about Hibbert had twenty and fourteen, but Jeff Green, you know, was had a ton of rebounds and assists. It was like eight rebounds, six assists. Ashani Cook also had one of the top five games of his career in that game too. I mean, just, considering we got not much from three of the seven guys, like we we had three dudes who just dominated Ohio State in that game. I mean, it was really really fun to watch. Well, I don't know if it'll be this year or next year or the year after, but it would be great to watch a game like that again. <laughs> it it would. It would be great to watch a game again. It would. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to us talk about Georgetown for a long time during a pandemic. It really means a lot to Howie, I know, especially. Um <laughs> Until next time, this is Kente Corner. I hate you, Bobby. I know. I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) Later. Later.